everyone and welcome to another episode of Memphis's Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast. My name is Rachel and I am Memphis's podcast officer this year. Our speaker today is Samuel Pearson. He holds a bachelor's degree in history from Corbin University and an MA in early modern history from Durham University. After completing his MA at Durham, he returned to the US, where his work at Corbin University in Salem, Oregon, has included study abroad operations, international student support, and international partnership development. Samuel is currently an adjunct professor at Corbin University, where he teaches courses in American history and in the history of Christianity and Judaism. His paper for us today is entitled The Henrician Reformation in the Diocese of Canterbury, 1541-1543, Revisiting Corpus Christi MS 128. I hope you enjoy it. On Easter Sunday, 1541, Thomas Bale came to St. Andrew's Church in Canterbury to receive the sacrament. Churchwarden Thomas Wainfleet was approaching with the chalice, and as a deposition against Dale later read, quote, The chalice was not covered with a cloth, but bare. Take the chalice with the towel in your hand, as other folks do, said Wainfleet. Dale said that Almighty God did make his hand as well as he did the priest's, and so willingly and presumptuously did take the chalice in his bare hand, comparing that the priest's hand was no better than his. Unquote. Dale's bold action is recorded in manuscripts that survive today in the letters and papers of King Henry VIII. The manuscript in which it is contained does not reveal who detected Dale, but the incident because the conservative clergy in Kent in the fraught years of the early 1540s were looking for evidence of theological error in the Diocese of Canterbury. This event survives to us among papers related to Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, because Cranmer seized records from the clergy of Kent in order to expose a conspiracy against him, the Provendry's plot of 1543. Dale's decision to grab the chalice with his bare hand indicates the sensitive nature of even such orthodox rites as the Eucharist in the years Henry VIII was muddling through his policies on liturgy. The insubordination perceived in Thomas Dale's act invites us to reconsider the nature of evidence contained in church court records of the Tudor Reformation. I encountered this incident while researching my master's dissertation. Specifically, I was drawn by it to study further the range of popular responses to the Reformation in Kent, a topic that is dramatically illuminated in a collection of manuscripts. Specifically, in this paper, I will explore further manuscript 128 belonging to Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, also available in partial transcription as part of the letters and papers foreign and domestic of King Henry VIII. The original 440 pages of this manuscript collection are bound together in a folio because they relate to Thomas Cranmer Archbishop of Canterbury and remarkable events that occurred in Kent in the early 1540s. Specifically, in an unsuccessful plot to have the king depose Archbishop Cranmer on charges of fostering heresy, the leading Catholics in Kent amassed an enormous record of heresy um, in the 
Canterbury Diocese, now, now calendared in the letters and papers. In response to this, um, this massive evidence, Cranmer sent his own commissioners to seize the papers of priests and lay people involved in the conspiracy, uh, both men and women um, involved in the plot. The papers seized in this purge and the subsequent interrogations of conservative clergy form the bulk of manuscript 128 at Corpus Christi, now cataloged in the letters and papers. And so included in the papers were, in, were written accusations detailing the extent of heresy and the penetration of evangelical ideas in Kent. In this paper, I wish to explore the possible uses of MS-128 to suggest what it may reveal about popular politics in early modern England. Because the manuscript contains both the records of a conservative conspiracy to unseat Cranmer and the evangelical response, the record permits an extraordinarily deep dive into the reception of the Reformation amongst the laity and clergy of Kent in the early 1540s. As an outline, I will first give a bit of historiographical context on the Reformation studies, uh, on the picture of Reformation studies generally. Uh, second, a historical context, uh, specifically debates around um, Bible reading and theological discussion in Kent between priests and laity will illustrate the significance of, of events in 1543 in the Diocese of Canterbury. Third, we'll explore the politics of the parish or diocese, but to borrow Keith Wrightson's phrase, the politics of the parish, meaning autonomous lay criticism of theological and political doctrine. Um, and finally, we'll we'll get to some concluding remarks that um, point up why this, why this topic is significant for the study of religious reform in the 16th century. First, I wish to mention the historiographical context of the study of the Reformation. Traditional scholarship on the English Reformation has swung between two poles. On the one hand, a largely Protestant Reformation from below narrative had a progressive evangelical minority overthrowing the excesses of a relatively burdensome and irrelevant monastic and clerical system. Um, supposedly, the Reformation had wise, widespread support among the rank and file priesthood and common folk. So that's a, a traditional view, sometimes called a Whig historical view of the Reformation. On the other hand, we have the, the Catholic or revisionist approach, uh, seeing the top-down reforms of a, of a fanatical minority sweeping away much that was sacred in medieval life. Uh, to the disappointment of a conservative majority. And we might call this, this interpretation the Reformation from above. And there's much more nuance to it than this, but um, these are two of the major interpretations of the Reformation. Most historians operating in kind of this conversation um, might find it easy to interpret Dale's sacrilegious act at the beginning of this paper simply as his belief in an evangelical doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. And without denying the real substantive importance of a theological controversy to later years of Henry's reign, uh, this paper seeks to complicate this interpretation. Because historians have changed the conversation on the Reformation from theological causes to political consequences. Keith Wrightson and others have broadened what we define as early modern politics. Ethan Shagan has shown the range of motivations with which early modern English people could approach matters of state 
and theological ideas. And Natalie Zeman Davis and others, although operating outside of traditional um, scholarship on the Reformation in England, have nonetheless allowed us to examine the mentalities of early modern people by reconstructing their lives. Second, some context on the timeline of the Reformation in Kent. In 1533, Henry appointed Thomas Cranmer Archbishop of Canterbury. The next year saw Parliament pass the Treason Act, making it illegal to speak against the king and his policies, and the Act of Supremacy, making Henry the head of the Church of England, not the Pope. In 1538, Thomas Cromwell, the Vicar General, issued the injunctions. These were orders to the clergy about proper liturgy and practice. And he also ordered every parish to buy an English Bible and to have it available for anyone to come and read at their convenience. Typically, these Bibles would be extremely heavy or they might be chained to some part of the church so they couldn't be moved. In 1539, Thomas Cranmer expanded on the injunctions, uh, writing to curates with a new requirement that um, these curates in Kent should read the Bibles, not just have them. Um, but Cranmer was also concerned not to let things get too out of hand. For example, having unlettered men and women discussing the Bible in alehouses, coming, with, coming up with their own interpretations of it. And so in, in Cromwell's mind, Bible reading would contribute to order and, and harmony and homage to the king. In reality, in Kent at least, the introduction of the vernacular Bible proved far more divisive um, than intended. Um, so the act, finally the act for advancement of true religion passed Parliament in uh, May of 1543. And this act restricted the reading of the Bible to clerics, to the upper gentry, um, to nobles, and it expressly banned certain groups from reading or discussing it. This included women, journeymen, yeomen, husbandmen, um, laborers, and the, the fine for um, violating this was prison time. With this context in mind, what creative uses of MS-128 are possible? Understanding the response to the Reformation in Kent requires a close reading of the source material. The particular section of the letters and papers that deals with Kent in 1543 is overshadowed by the Prebendary's plot. In his illustrious work, Emmon Duffy has scanned this chapter in Kentish history for evidence of the unpopularity of top-down evangelical reforms. While this is one possible application of the evidence, um, especially in some parishes, in other locales, the laity's embrace of iconoclasm, Bible reading, and other reforms testifies to the popularity of the Reformation. Thus, rather than repurposing the record to prove that relatively more or less conservative than evangelical sentiment prevailed in Kent, perhaps might a more productive question to ask of the record be, what can it tell us about the operations of parish politics? How people keep the peace and how they understand order. In Cranmer's hand, he writes how during the plot against him, the Prebendary's plot, the conservative preacher, Edmund Sheather, had called on lay support against Cranmer and evangelical heresies. From his pulpit on the 29th of July, 1543, in the old style, he asked, quote, will you know how to discern a true preacher from a false? You have a dog, which is your conscience, 
Whensoever you shall come to any sermon, ask your dog what he saith unto it. If he saith be good, then follow it. But if your dog bark against it, and say that it is not, then beware and follow it not. If you will ask your conscience what she, what she thinketh of such newfangles as are brought into the church of God, she will say that they be not." Unquote. Although this sermon was rhetorical in that she either expected a certain response from his audience, in calling on lay people to negotiate the proper response to heresy, to listen, listen to their conscience, rather than invoking the authority of the church fathers, the pope, or scripture itself, she either invited laity into theological discussions of national significance. As she either invited the laity into this kind of discussion, lay people in the letters and papers also asserted themselves as subjects in political discourse. In the parish of All Saints Northgate, Margaret Tofts said that when Cranmer next came to Canterbury, quote, she would speak to Mr. Commissary to command all the curates in Canterbury to read the Bible as they had of late done, unquote. Numerous vicars stood accused of withholding or removing the Bible from the church, contrary to the king's injunctions. One Thomas Hazelden of Elmstead criticized the king's injunctions, saying a fart for them, and asked why he should do more reverence to the crucifix than to the gallows, saying he knew his words would be disclosed and, disclosed, and he would come to his answer. The whole parish of St. Peter's stood witness against their canon, Vincent Ingham, for commanding that no man should hear or read the Bible on pain of imprisonment and cast to in prison on, for that reason. Um, one of them for speaking against him on, in regard to the king's injunctions on the Bible, and the other one for showing him the king's injunctions. All of this may suggest that the commoners of Kent sought to correct and to censure their clergy to bring them in line with their own perception of royal policies, invoking the king's name, yet acting outside of his official auspices. Likewise, confessional politics provided an outlet for the expression of conservative sentiments. Ralph Post, the bell ringer of Christ Church in Canterbury, was another subject caught up in the letters and papers. Post was irate that his priest, a doctor champion, had removed an image of the Virgin from his church. Time passed, and after Dr. Champion died, he was given burial rites with incense. The manuscript reads, after the priest had sensed the grave and the boy was bearing away the censers and the coals, Post called the boy back, took the censers, and poured the hot coals upon him in the grave. The deposition reads, quote, as though he had been a heretic worthy of burning, unquote. This was a symbolic act of conservative resistance to church reforms that shows people like Post were well aware of the limits of acceptable speech and willing to find ways around them. Although acting outside of a formal heresy inquisition, Post expressed popular politics in the idiom of confessional conflict. Commonplace lay politics thus reflected the state's means of repression and regulation of speech. In conclusion, politics, even if not violent or vocal, engulfed the people of the English Reformation in more ways than a Protestant versus Catholic paradigm allows for. 
the Protestant Reformation was not an event imposed on English people. It was a process occurring through, in, and sometimes in spite of them. This is not a new point, and is, it is rather a summary of the point that Ethan Shagan made in his excellent book, Popular Politics and the English Reformation. In seizing the chalice at mass or dumping coals on a grave, Thomas Dale and Ralph Post committed political acts in a confessional language. For at the same time as elites like Sheether courted opinion in order to legitimize their actions, commoners could challenge conservative or reforming policies they disagreed with. From this point, we step beyond a traditional Whig Protestant or revisionist account of the Reformation. Questions remaining are numerous and could explore a sociology of dissent. What was the, were there common patterns among women, men, um, literate or illiterate um, people who uh, committed themselves to acts of protest? Uh, were a given spoken words or speech acts done deliberately or um, out of earshot unintentionally? Um, so I conclude this paper with more of a question than an exclamation mark. What possibilities do records like heresy trials and interrogations have? How can we still use them to explore further the unintended consequences of the Reformation? That was Samuel Pearson with his paper, The Henrician Reformation in the Diocese of Canterbury, 1541 to 1543, revisiting Corpus Christi MS128. And next up, I had the opportunity to chat to Samuel and ask him some questions about his research. So hi, Samuel, and thank you so much for joining us today on the MEMSA podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to answer some of our questions. Um, so firstly, I think maybe we could talk a little more about the manuscript collection itself, perhaps how you came across it and how it came to survive in the format that it has. So who bound the manuscripts together, for example, um, and who decided that this wealth of sort of 400 plus pages of information, who decided that they needed to be bound together and why? Thank you, Rachel. Yes, the manuscript I'm referring to is um, commonly known as Corpus Christi 128. That comes from Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. And all of the manuscripts are bound together because they're associated with Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he had advocated the cause of the Reformation in Kent. So the volume, um, MS-128, includes a total of some 440 pages, and these are in three different documents bound together. And so one of them is a record of the expenses of related to the imprisonment and execution later on of Cranmer and two reform-minded bishops in the time of Mary. Another is a kind of a, a biography of Cranmer written by his secretary. But the third document, excuse me, the first document is the one to which we'll refer to in the talk. Um, it has no title and it's an accumulation of, of interrogations and papers related to a conspiracy against Cranmer by the conservative clergy and gentry of Kent. Uh, these, uh, these 
mostly men and, and some women had accused Cranmer to the king of using his office as archbishop to spread heresy and to protect evangelicals from um, the law when they had broken it. And so King Henry VIII did not act forcefully on either side of this conspiracy, but he did allow Cranmer to investigate against the conspirators against him. And so the manuscript is a record of Cranmer's attempt to find out the source of this conspiracy and also papers that he had seized in the attempt to, to find out more about it. So as a result, it gives us a lens, a window into both um, reform-minded uh, clerics and reformers in Kent, as well as their opponents. So it's a really great treasure trove of information about the kinds of religious and political ideas that people were, were thinking about in, in 1540s, 1530s Kent. But who actually compiled the evidence? We do not have um, a definitive answer of who bound this document as far as I know, but as far as I know, according to the historian Brian Hogman, we can assume that it was bound by Archbishop Cranmer himself um, with the help of his secretary or his clerks. And so it survives to us in Parker's Library in Cambridge at Corpus, Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, where it has also been calendared in the letters and papers of Henry VIII. Thank you for that. And it is such a fantastic, like you say, it's a window and you get all these fascinating, interesting stories, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about. Um, I was particularly struck by the scene that you described at the, I think at the very start of your talk of um, Thomas Dale clasping the chalice with his bare hands. Could you perhaps explain to our listeners why this was such a significant act, a significant moment? Yes, the scene at the beginning of the talk describes um, a parishioner using his bare hands to grasp the chalice. And for this, I want to address myself to communion uh, or the Eucharist. Um, the historian Emin Duffy wrote in his book, The Stripping of the Altars, quote, the liturgy lay at the heart of medieval religion and the mass lay at the heart of the liturgy, unquote. So by taking the sacrament, um, you were receiving kind of a renewed redemption that Christ had made possible with the crucifixion. And so frequently a man or a woman in the time of the Reformation could be reported to um, authorities for saying that the sacrament of the altar was merely a figure or merely a symbol, not the real body and blood of Christ. Um, and this goes back to kind of medieval mentalities around the mass, I think. It was not just an individual act, but also part of what holds together the community and the bonds of unity. One is kind of incorporated into the, the body of Christ, the community, by having taken the um, communicated, really. So it is suspected that, um, you know, people wouldn't necessarily have access to the mass every day. It may have been a, a more rare event, maybe even once a year for some. And so that only heightened the sense that this was a really meaningful and momentous event. So by taking um, the, the chalice in his bare hand, we, I believe that Thomas Dale was doing something quite um, it, on the face of it kind of ordinary, but really quite um, extraordinary. He was, um, it was not allowed for a lay person, for example, to take hold of a chalice that was only given to 
the priest. And so um, this is kind of a form of really anti-clericalism of a broad set of beliefs that relate to the believing the communion is only a symbol, that the laity had rights to the communion in both kinds, the, the wine and the bread, and that covering the chalice with a cloth wasn't necessary. Um, so I'm just choosing to read this incident as Dale trying to um, participate in the mysteries of the sacraments as a lay person. That's fascinating. And that is something that this manuscript sort of gives us a little bit of a hint of access into, isn't it? It's this, this other side of the Reformation. It's the laity. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the individuals whose depositions we hear throughout the, uh, throughout the text. You refer to them, I think, as commoners. But what do we know about them in terms of their social status and social standing in Kent? Just how common were they? Yes. My... Research has been more qualitative than quantitative, but I can refer to the scholarship of Brian Hogman, who has counted the people involved in the prebendary's plot. And he confirms there's evidence against 240 clergy and 60 laity throughout the diocese. So a quantitative stand analysis on the socioeconomic standing of people in Kent who deposed in this manuscript is further necessary. For example, we know that John Tofts was a layman, an attorney, and we hear a lot from the female members of this household. Um, but one way to further research this would be to examine the wills of those who had uh, given depositions um, and, and to look at their, their households, their property, and determine um, what was their social standing and their wealth at the time that they um, gave a deposition. In most cases, though, I'm relying more on a qualitative analysis on the description provided by magistrates, clerks, and clergymen in Kent describing the people whom they had accused or who they had interrogated. One particularly useful quote comes from the conservative preacher, John Mills. In responding to a question from Cranmer while he was being interrogated, he said that, quote, he did greatly fear that seditious preaching and occupying of corrupt books by the which two things schism did engender among the people Open disputation was in alehouses and in households reasoning among servants, of the which did arise much debate and strife. A communion would, a commotion would or might be among the people in this shire by such evils not then thoroughly looked on. Unquote. So he further states that the threat perceived or real that popular disputation and Bible reading and such um, would engender disorder um, was a good, good enough reason for conservative clerics to try to root out that seditious preaching, to try to monitor further what was being said in churches and alehouses in order to restore um, the king's law. And he mentions the king by name. And so really thus, I'm trying to look at, at this as an example of, of how much the real or perceived idea that popular disputation was was going on was used by both sides, conservative and evangelical reformers, um, to try to support their, their interpretation of what the king wanted and, and the proper destination for, um, for the form of, of English religion, really. Thank you. It's so fascinating to think about sort of, it's, I think it's easy sometimes when you think about these 
big sort of religious upheavals to think about it being debated at the highest levels. But it's wonderful that you found examples there of um, people, albeit complaining about this happening, but people sort of um, reading Bibles at home, debating it in the alehouse, servants debating it in the home. I just think that's a really, really wonderful piece of evidence. So something else which stood out to me was the use of a, a dog and a dog with female pronouns when describing the conscience. Um, I wanted to ask you, was this unusual for the period or would the early modern conscience often be described as her and she? And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the significance of this metaphor. Yeah. So in Cranmer's hand, he writes how during the plot, the conservative preacher Edmund Sheather was calling on lay support against Cranmer and other evangelical heresies. And so in a sermon in 1543, he calls on people to use their conscience to respond to these supposed heresies or errors they had heard. And the kind of metaphor he says is that um, your conscience is a dog and it will bark if it hears something that's untrue. And notably uses the term, the female pronoun she with, um, to describe this conscience. So on the surface level, this is an example of preachers using a common sense and ordinary kinds of um, illustration to enlist popular support outside the priesthood. But it may also be a window into the mentalities of 16th century English people. So I wanted to thank you, Rachel, for that question because it asks, is there something more we can gain by reading against the grain? here. Specifically, is there significance to Sheether using the term conscience with a female pronoun? Is it related to other discourses on the use of conscience and describing its sort of um, human characteristics? At least in this manuscript, there's nothing definitive that I could find. The term conscience appears 20 times in the manuscript and only, it's only associated with gender this one time. There's an additional time that this sermon is mentioned, but without recording the, um, the, the female pronoun she. So in the final analysis, I cannot answer this with certainty, but it would be great to hear from podcast listeners on early modern, especially researchers on early modern discourses of conscience. Um, how uh, conscience, does conscience have a gender and is this, related to discourses around maybe the, the body politic, or is this just a, um, an unintentional use of the term that Sheether has here? Thank you. Yeah, and I'm sure some of our listeners can be emailing in to us to answer that question. Okay, so lastly, and apologies, because this is quite a big question, but in your opinion, what can this source tell us about how the Reformation was received in Kent? Do we see more evidence of a top-down or a bottom-up Reformation? Or are these still useful frameworks for thinking about the Reformation in this period? Or as I think you've hinted at, should we maybe be dispensing with these categories altogether? Yes, I think these are still helpful categories to start with the last part of the question. But um, a more inclusive study of the Reformation assesses its importance to ordinary English subjects. Um, in my dissertation, I tried to look at Tudor statutory law against treason, uh, specifically the Treason Act of 1534, 
And the categories of so-called heresy and treason become very conflated and entangled with one another. So I try to argue that the enforcement and resistance to that um, idea of treason included English people, men and women from all, all down the social scale. People could try to conceal, police, or silence seditious or heretical speech. And so the importance of how the Reformation <clears throat> was received in Kent um, just tells us that you know, as people absorbed um, the ideas of the Reformation it did not necessarily mean that they accepted them at face value, but they negotiated them and uh, made, made sense of them within their own contexts. For example, English people's individual and parochial interests could coalesce with the surveillance aims of, of someone like Archbishop Cranmer and um, priests involved in the um, higher level discussions. Um, to return to the beginning part of the question, do we see more evidence for a top-down or a bottom-up reformation? This is one of the major debates in reformation historiography. Um, recently, scholars like Ethan Shagan have suggested that a more um, that yes, top-down and bottom-up discussions about the reformation are valuable, but a linear model of one-way influence is not necessarily relevant here. So people don't just believe what they hear or read. Um, and so I want to refer to Natalie Zeman Davis work on reciprocal exchange between popular and elite culture in early modern Europe. Um, so popular culture could appropriate and manipulate and use um, ideas and not necessarily just being a, a reflection of, of what came down from intellectual or theological discussions. So I think by looking at at this manuscript in the final analysis, we can use it to, to suggest that this may, perhaps this was part of the early emergence of the public sphere of people um, becoming subjects in the, in the creation of, of news and opinion rather than just passive recipients of it. Well, thank you, Samuel, for a fantastic paper and a wonderful discussion, but sadly we are running out of time, but it's always great to sort of hear new angles about this topic, which I think will always continue to capture historians' attention. It's just great. But yes, thank you very much for appearing on the MEMSA podcast. This is a really great episode. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. It's been such a privilege to be on your podcast today. listening to this episode of MEMSA's Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast. If you'd like to hear more from MEMSA and stay up to date with future podcast episodes, seminars and other events, you can find us at Durham MEMSA or you can join our Facebook group at MEMSA Durham 2021 to 22.